Hi, I'm Victor Milligan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means. We're exploring the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And with me today is Forrester VP and Group Director, Laura Ketzel, to talk to us about cybersecurity currently and the RSA conference and outputs from it specifically. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Laura, I'm going to start off with what happened on 60 Minutes this week. The Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said that his view of the economy was that it's in good shape now and the expectations that it will be in perfectly fine shape for at least 12 months out. However, he made a major statement regarding cybersecurity that he felt like if there was one major threat to the banking system itself, thus the economy, would be cybersecurity, raising the profile significantly of this risk. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think cybersecurity is certainly a big factor a big risk factor, that is, for the financial system in general, because financial services firms spend lots of money on cybersecurity, is the good news. Uh, and they're among the biggest spenders. Some of that is obviously obligatory and regulatory, but much of it is making sure that they're protecting their billions upon billions of dollars of investments and consumers and consumers' bank accounts and so on and so forth. But Cybersecurity is a tricky thing to navigate because very often you don't know what you don't know. And the problem that we have, as, and I say we as you know, all the people who play defense and want to make sure that companies keep their money and keep their reputation and protect their customers and protect their brands and keep them safe, is we have to win every day. We have to win all the time, whereas attackers only have to win once. They can try and try and fail and fail and fail, but the one time in 700 that they get in and could cause tremendous damage. So it's an inherently asymmetric thing, as with many things related to digital, and so it's never an easy game to play. You had made a statement on this item that said at the end of 2019 that we might see ourselves past the Gilded Age of Cybersecurity my words, that maybe when all is said and done, we might have lost the game. Could you comment on that? So I don't mean that we'll have lost the game, because I think the state we're in right now, if we're honest with ourselves, is we're not losing, but we're sure as heck not winning either. And so for several years, broadly speaking, across all industries, companies have been investing more and more in information security, which is a good thing by and large. The problem is that though we improve our capabilities, we get more mature, we spend money on a bunch of things that need doing, the bar is rising on the attacker side as well. So we're fighting things to a draw. And at a certain point, there will be no more money that can be allocated to cybersecurity. And so if you look at things like the RSA conference show floor, which is a good place to look for state of the industry because it tells you how many companies there are making noise in particular sectors of the market and what their budgets are like and, of course, huge and splashy and extremely noisy. And so my comments on we may look back on RSA conference 2019, which was last week, as the, the sort of beginning of the end or the end of the cybersecurity gilded age in the sense that the bonanza of funding going into this space from every side, from venture capitalists, from private equity investors, from enterprises themselves, cannot be infinite. And so at a certain point, we're going to see some contraction because that money is not going to be seeing the return on the investments that it's making. So if I look at it from the standpoint of money coming in for cybersecurity and look at that as an investment pool, 
You could also argue that there is another investment pool coming in on the threat side, which is the ramping up of the nation state, the ramping up of industrial espionage, and simply the idea that it is it is it is financially fruitful to be a hacker in today's day and age. I mean, there's money flowing in on the other side that might eclipse the money being poured into cybersecurity. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one of the many worries that we have in in, in our field is that cybercrime does pay, pure and simple. And, you know, particularly if you live in a jurisdiction with not a lot of extradition treaties, uh, the likelihood that anyone's going to bother to actually catch and prosecute you is pretty remote. And so, I mean, you saw the kind of various indictments of various Russian hackers uh, handed down by the Department of Justice over the last two years. That's not because they think they're actually going to be able to get their hands on those people. It's because they're making a point of showing that we take these things seriously. Although I suppose it's always possible one of those people could slip up and go to a country where someone might catch them and extradite them. But yes, there's tons of money flowing in on the attacking side, and not just in the sort of nation-state, uh, you know, intelligence and disinformation wars kind of side that's gotten a lot of press all over the place because it's been so prevalent, but also on just plain old fraud and cybercrime. Ad fraud, for example, which is you know not that exciting as a thing, is a multi-billion-dollar industry. So you know basically simulating eyeballs, inflating numbers of eyeballs that ads see and so on and so forth is a huge source of revenue for all sorts of criminal syndicates and you know other sort of unaffiliated uh, cybercrime actors all over the world. So, you know, part of this is the inequality question, which is where the crime emanates from is areas where there's economic depression, meaning to your point, the crime pays. How do we get our head around this issue of economic inequality and cybersecurity? Like, how do we get beneath that tagline? Sure. So I've done a ton of thinking about this uh, because I sort of, I came up with the idea after reading a study of h- historical uh, economic inequality, you know, reaching back into prehistory, and I couldn't let go of the idea that this was a particular problem for cybersecurity. So I did a whole bunch of research of my own and concluded that no, my idea was in fact right. It was not crazy. And so here's how that breaks down. It's that what matters actually more than, you know, absolute income levels, so poverty levels, full stop, in generating things like cybercrime is actually inequality. So places where you have, you know, the haves and the have-nots are really far apart, you know, as measured by things like the Gini coefficient. And so if you look at the countries that are some of the bigger sources of cybercrime these days, so places like Nigeria and Brazil and North Korea and Russia, what they have in common is that income inequality is large and the rule of law is weak. And income inequality and the rule and sort of the rule of law not applying equally to everybody uh, is a pretty strong correlation. You see it all over the world. And so what happens is, and you can see how this is a bigger deal for cybersecurity even than society in general, simply because cybercrime does pay, as we talked about before. And so as people look at the system and they say, you know what? There's people who are haves and they have everything, and I'm a have-not, and there's nothing I can do about that that's within the system because the system protects its own. It's not working for me, so why should I play by the rules? If I have hacking skills, if I have computer security skills, why wouldn't I devote them to making the most money that I can because the chances that I'll get caught are pretty remote and the rewards are pretty large. And so when you look at that, you say, wait a minute. Okay, so I, you can understand how that would be true for these countries where the rules 
rule of law is already weak and economic inequality is large and entrenched. But what about countries like most Western economies where inequality is growing, but the rule of law is pretty strong? You can say, well, people don't just suddenly become less law-abiding overnight. And no, they don't. But over time, as people see the system is rigged against them and they have more technical facilities for dropping out than they used to, so things like cryptocurrencies and self-sovereign identity, you can see a world in which very talented people who, for whatever reason, don't think they can be a part of the haves say, you know what, I'm going outside the system because the system's rigged against me, so why shouldn't I? So let's talk about the threat intelligence for a second. As we sit here today, to your point, there are societal dynamics, there's economic reward, business and people are increasingly challenged to defend their assets, whether they be IP, digital property, or things as simple as identity. So where are we in understanding the nature and sort of evolution of the threat? Okay. So I'll give a sort of general answer and then a specific to the kind of threat intelligence category of the information security market, which is a kind of discrete thing. So in general, uh, threat intelligence that's good is difficult to develop, right? Because there's plenty of information out there on the general nature of the threats that you might face, and you can make some educated guesses about which things are most important for you as a business. You know, if you're a bank, attackers go where the money is, and there are certain kinds of fraud that are easier to commit than others, and certain kinds of thefts that are easier to commit than others, and so on and so forth. Uh, But the sort of what you what you might be thinking of when you think about threat intelligence as, as, as in this specific group is targeting me in this specific way, and I can develop a lot of intelligence about who they are and what methods they use, their tactics and techniques and procedures is the kind of term of art in cybersecurity in general. That's really hard to do and requires a lot of investment. It requires a whole bunch of digital assets. Most importantly, it requires skilled people, right? Because And so what you find is that unless you are a very, very large enterprise with a lot of money to spend who can attract the fairly scarce on the ground expertise to actually do that, the sort of generic threat intelligence feeds that you can get from different companies are helpful, but they're certainly not going to give you that kind of customized to who you are and what you might particularly be facing things. The, the folks who can afford that level of specificity are, you know, government intelligence agencies and very, very large financial services companies and very, very large companies in a few other sectors. It's really difficult to do. And the sort of, oh, I can subscribe to a service and then have a platform that sorts the alerts for me? Sure, you can. That's sort of what you get in the threat intelligence market. But that's you know, 15% of what you would need to have really effective threat intelligence. So everybody knows what the general threats are, but getting really specific is hard and requires a lot of investment that honestly, it doesn't make a lot of sense for most companies to make simply because they couldn't possibly afford it. They're much better basic things that they would better spend their money on. So at the sector level, you we've had critical infrastructure named for a while now. And this is identifying areas that would be high risk, high impact. And utility, the energy utilities environment sort of comes to mind here. 
So utilities are rapidly digitizing their environment, meaning they're growing the threat surface significantly. And yet, you know, meanwhile, there has been statements by nation states that this is a high value target. So how does a utility company work in an environment where they're actively taking on a high risk digital strategy while being a high value target? Where are they in understanding the threat? You're absolutely right that utilities, and so not just energy, right, but water and all kinds of utilities are rapidly digitizing because as they upgrade not just their kind of in-office infrastructure, but actually more importantly, all of their infrastructure, so in power plants and in water purification plants. But yeah, all of that infrastructure is getting upgraded and all of those things now have the potential to be connected and thus allow the utility to better and more efficiently manage. But that, of course, as you said, increases the, increases the attack surface of that particular utility. And utilities don't have the kinds of gigantic uh, information security budgets that, say, financial services firms often do. So they're having to be cautious about, you know, how much do we expose the sort of making cost-benefit trade-offs between connecting things and keeping them more siloed, understanding that that's less efficient, but that they may not have the resources to cope with the increased attack surface of a more connected set of infrastructure. And particularly when you start thinking about connected roads and bridges, and since I live in the Netherlands, uh, canal slouses as well, you can see how this could be very dangerous, right? Because if attackers get a hold of that kind of infrastructure, they can flood things, they can disrupt water service, they can disrupt power service. There are lots of safeguards in place with humans in the loop to make sure those kinds of things don't happen because of sort of weird system corner cases and such. But you will start to see them for just garden variety disruptive and or kind of stealing money, cyber criminal ends as well as things get more connected. There's a lot of investment going into what we would call operational technology security, so as opposed to information technology security, so securing all the things effectively. These are the, tech, these are the technologies that are typically ascribed to the grid. Yes, or or whatever takes the place of the grid in water utilities yep. and things like this. Yep. So all the kind of – and this goes to manufacturing as well, right? Because as factory robots are connected and QA systems and sensors are connected, the possibility for messing with processes that would produce faulty parts or, you know, faulty systems that those manufacturers produce becomes larger. And so – it is difficult to overestimate the amount of impact that cybersecurity threats have in those sectors as all of those things become more connected. Even the lighter touch of automation will remove from telemetry as system intake, meaning I'm simply getting information, but my actions are still human, to actually digital is driving the response. If I can get, get in that flow of you know, input to output, I'm actually, to your point, I'm actually changing the way the grid works. Indeed. And one of the most dangerous places to be stuck is if your telemetry data is flawed and you don't know it. Mm. So you're taking actions based on what you think the situation to be, but the situation on the ground is actually different. It's just that someone has tampered with the data from your sensors and you don't know it. So this brings us to security communities that talk about the risk, talk about methods to get in front of the risk. And of course, the RSA conference is sort of a marquee moment uh, for communities like this. Could you walk through what are the big ideas coming out of the RSA conference of 2019? 
wrote a lot about this, as in how would I sum up RSA Conference 2019 in, you know, 15 words or less. And whilst there's no overarching theme per se, other than, interestingly, the one of the conference itself. And so this year's theme, I thought was a lot better than many RSA conference themes. Bear in mind that I've I've attended RSA conference most years since 2002. So I've had a lot of exposure to conference themes over the years. And so this year's conference theme was better. And that sounds kind of hokey. Theme was better than other things or the theme was better? Literally, the actual tagline of the theme is better, period. And previous themes have been things like the power of now and, you know, we're all connected and so on. And so better sounds kind of hokey. And but once you dig into it, that's actually the overarching desire of all of us in the community. What I said before was that we're not losing, but we're not winning either. And so what we are striving for is to be better as an industry, to be better than the people who attack us, to be better than the challenges that we face so that we can overcome them. We're not there yet, but that's what we're trying to do. So in all of the, because the conference has something like 15 tracks, um, I helped put together the protecting data and the supply chain track this year, which was, a, which was a lot of fun. And so we got to talk about a lot of the critical infrastructure issues in our track that we referenced uh, earlier. And, but if you take that all together, you know, everything from securing the public cloud and best practices to dealing with threats and hackers that are criminal or connected with nation states to data protection and policy and the law, uh, there's no kind of one overarching thing. You can play some buzzword bingo on the show floor with machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, and right information at the right time and those things. One of the less great things about conference this year, it was in, and you know, with the usual caveats that one can't possibly see everything, one of my colleagues asked me, so what was new this year? And I was hard-pressed to come up with anything super new. And I think part of that just reflects the fact that we're in the kind of professionalization phase as we have been for a while. Is cybersecurity on an incremental path or are they on a transformation path, meaning they're going to do the same things just better or they have to do things very differently to, to begin winning or get in front of what is a extraordinarily amorphic and dynamic risk? Interestingly, I'm going to have to give a both answer. I think... On the technology front, we have almost all the technology we need. So there's nothing sort of step change oriented other than one possible exception, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, in cybersecurity. We've got all the technical stuff we need. Our problem is that we're not putting it all together as effectively as we should. And so that's why I talked about professionalization and and, and maturation before, because we need to transform how we do cybersecurity and how we engage with all of the humans that work in our companies and that are our consumers to make them part of the solution instead of you know, objects to which bad things happen or to whom bad things happen, which is a lot of the places that the people who work in our companies and our consumers are now, not because they want to be, but because that's what they're stuck with. And so I think the transformational aspect of this is transforming how we approach the human aspects of cybersecurity, not the technical stuff. The technical stuff all exists. We just have to put it together the right way. So this is sort of the underlying thinking of zero trust, which is 
the technologies may be the same, but the difference between a perimeter-based strategy and a zero-trust strategy and its involvement of the employees is starkly different. Yes, and the sort of death of the perimeter is a well-worn security trope. The value of the zero-trust approach that Forrester started out with, God, it's almost 10 years ago now, believe it or not, um, is not just in that it sort of demolished the idea of the perimeter, hard, crunchy, outside, soft, chewy center model of information security, which everyone long knew had been inadequate, but in how it puts everything together so that you concentrate on the data that you have, the devices that you allow to do certain things, and the people who are the actors in your system and what they're allowed to do and not do, so that they don't, ha- they don't any given break in a zero-trust infrastructure, because break-ins happen, right? So the goal of, of zero-trust as a concept and as a real thing that you can build today is to make any given vulnerability or break-in or sort of flaw in the system be as minuscule as humanly possible so that the person who gets in gets access to a very small number of things. And then if they wish to go further, then it's just as hard as it was the first time. So the your argument is it's both that the incremental is that the technologies are evolving, the approaches are taking a more transformative. But you did mention there's one technology you want to circle back in. What was that technology? So that technology is one that's actually been around for a really long time. Uh, and so the math is not new. So this is what's called homomorphic encryption, So which sounds very science fiction-y to those unfamiliar with it. But this is a kind, this is a cryptographic approach that's been around since the 70s, I think, or maybe earlier. And the reason homomorphic encryption is interesting is because it allows you to do your calculations and act upon data that's still encrypted. And that's a big deal because one of the biggest vulnerabilities in any current system is that in order to do anything with the data, you have to decrypt it. And so there is always a place where the data is in the clear, and then you have to protect that place where the data is in the clear. When you use homomorphic encryption, you can do your computations on data that's still encrypted. You don't ever actually have to look at it. And so that's a big deal because then a bunch of the attackers can grab the data or look at it and look at it when you've decrypted it at particular points in the system, vulnerabilities go away. Now, you, now you're probably thinking, well, why on earth haven't we done this before? It's because... It's- hey, Laura, why on earth have we not done this before? I was thinking that. I bet. Um, and the reason simple is because it was impractical. So homomorphic encryption is super computationally intensive. And so, and so it's really super slow, as in, you know, one calculation used to take seconds, which, of course, is completely impractical for any kind of system that you're going to scale, right? So now you've seen, you saw the first kind of commercial company doing things with homomorphic encryption that I was aware of anyway, a couple of years ago. And there was another that really seemed to have good, at least special purpose applications of homomorphic encryption for a bunch of different medical calculations and some other things uh, called duality technologies. That was one of the finalists at the Innovation Showcase at RSA Conference uh, this week, or Innovation Sandbox. I always get the name wrong. We don't have a 
general purpose application of this that's fast enough for anything you want to do yet or anything like it. But the fact that we've got some optimized special purpose applications of it gives me hope that with a few more years of working hard on the problem, we'll be able to improve it. And a bunch of the folks in the cryptographers community say, yeah, you know, we got to keep investing in this and we'll keep working and we're going to find ways to take this sort of small set of commercial applicability that we've managed to that we've managed to get to and broaden it out. Because if we can do that and have a lot more general purpose applicability of this technology that's not prohibitively expensive or prohibitively slow, that will change the game. So one of the things happening in our society, in our business world, of course, is clouds, which is the public cloud, private clouds, which don't run in contrast to security, but certainly highlight the need for security to handle that kind of model. So where are we in in terms of supporting public clouds or, or, or commercial, whatever way you want to phrase that, and how did that play out in the RSA conference? So the Amazon Elastic Compute Cloud Service is now more than 10 years old. So the public cloud is nothing like a new thing. And yet you'll still hear lots of people in our industry, and probably me, if you go back a couple years, so I have no right to throw stones on this one, talking about cloud security as a sort of distinct thing. And really, given the ubiquity of the public cloud and the fact that the question today for where you build things is not you know, why should I build it in the cloud, but why shouldn't I build it in the cloud in the sense of the cloud should probably be your default and then you should work backwards from there simply because it gives you all the scalability and a whole bunch of different features that you don't have to build yourself and, 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 and the price per unit has been going down for, you know, 60 quarters or whatever it is. Yeah, it's been primarily an economic question, but I, I think there's always been out there, uh, how much can I put in a cloud and and where do I stop for security reasons? And I imagine right. that's very front of mind even today. And those, the security concerns that people had, you know, five, six years ago, et cetera, are, I would argue, largely figments of their current imagination because it's easier to think about your own infrastructure than it is to think about somebody else's infrastructure that is ephemeral. For many, many use cases, and particularly for enterprises that don't have huge amounts of resources to invest in security, the public cloud can actually be more secure because you have access to a whole load of very good information security practices and subsystems in and from your public cloud provider, whichever one you pick. And so the biggest change is actually a mind shift for all of us who are doing the design, which is that when you're working in your own infrastructure, you can make a bunch of assumptions about the environment, as in what is around it, what can connect to it, and so on and so forth. Whereas in the public cloud, you should never make any of those assumptions because you don't know what's next to you. You don't know what else has access to the same infrastructure that you're on, and you don't need to know. That's the whole point. And so if you follow the design practices recommended by your public cloud provider, you really should be able to achieve as good or better security as you're able to achieve in your own infrastructure. There are a bunch of caveats that apply to when you're porting things from your own infrastructure to the cloud because the things that you're porting may have design assumptions embedded in them that you don't know of until you deploy it in a different infrastructure and come to some unpleasant realizations. But if you're building from scratch, 
you can absolutely do it as well or better as you could in your own infrastructure. And the other thing that I'll say that's somewhat counterintuitive is that we've long thought of the fact that cloud services are ephemeral, as in you can spin them up and spin them down in you know, milliseconds as a disadvantage for security, but there's actually an advantage in there in the sense of if these things are ephemeral, there's only so long in which somebody can attack them. And so if my container is there for, you know, three minutes and then it goes away and is destroyed utterly, the attacker only has those three minutes to mess around with it. And once those three minutes are over, whatever he's learned will teach him absolutely nothing about what to do in the next three minutes to the next thing that I build. So dynamism is actually a mitigant at this point in time. Yeah, it can be. Provided your design is good, ephemerality and dynamism can actually be assets as opposed to disadvantages. So we're in March of 2019. And as you said, we're coming to the close of the Gilded Age where security has to come to terms with the fact it's not winning. It's not losing but it's not winning and the incentives for the hacker simply grow. I was not at the RSA conference. What's the big takeaway that gives us a sense of hope, a sense of tomorrow as it relates to cybersecurity? Well, it's going to be a may you live in interesting times kind of year again, for sure, which means my life will be interesting and non-boring, but it's also a product of that transformation that we talked about earlier. Not so much technical transformation, although we've got some interesting innovation opportunities that I talked about before, but I think as we professionalize and as we bring more employees into our companies who are much more savvy about information security and privacy because the people coming in the door today know much, much more than the people who came in the door 15, 20 years ago. We have an opportunity to do better and to make use of all of the assets that we have. Because at the end of the day, what we've got are a bunch of technology we can deploy sensibly and a bunch of people that we can harness in our quest to fend off attackers and do better over time. And I think the most hopeful message here is that there are so many people interested in the field uh, there are an order of magnitude more people getting into this than there were when I got into the field more years ago than I really cared to talk about. <laughs> and that's a very hopeful sign because the more sort of brilliant minds we can get engaged in cybersecurity and on the good side rather than the bad side, the more that will help us. I can't promise you winning, but I can at least promise you that we'll fight them to a draw a little more easily than we do today. So we have the assets, we just need better methods. Yep, and we're working on it. Alrighty. Laura, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Anytime, thank you for having me. Cheers. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or tune in. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.